Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. I am excited to be talking to Dr. Mona Morstein. She's the author of Master Your Diabetes, published by Chelsea Green uh, in October of last year. Uh, and I recommend uh, clinicians, if well, you're clearly treating diabetes if you're in clinical practice, that you take a look at her book. It's a 500-page tome written in plain language, so um, regular people can actually understand it, but really it's arguably geared towards the clinician. You'll find endless, endless pearls, inspiration, treatment guidelines, uh, you know, botanicals, um, nutraceuticals, etc. So it's just a, it's a great, great book, and she's got a fabulous uh, bibliography with it. So before I jump in, though, let me just tell you about Dr. Morstein. She is a naturopathic physician. She actually graduated from my alma mater, uh, Nat Nat National College of Natural Medicine out in Portland. She's now practicing in Arizona. She was actually professor at the naturopathic college out there for years, and she was an attending physician in their clinic for a long time. Um, her clinic in Arizona is Arizona Integrative Medical Solutions. It's in Tempe. Uh, she focuses on prediabetes and diabetes. I know she does a lot of GI work. Uh, Dr. Morstein lectures all over the globe, and she's the founder and executive director of the Low Carb Diabetes Association. She's also a member of the Arizona Diabetes Association, um, in addition to actually winning lots of awards in the naturopathic uh, medical community and really being a wonderful ally of our profession. So welcome to New Frontiers, Dr. Morstein. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Fitzgerald. <laughs> <laughs> I've, you know, I remember learning from you years ago, um, 
you know, you just, you, you've got a lot to offer us. You're a good, you're a natural teacher. And, you know, one of the pearls I took from you a long time ago, and we'll talk about it in a little while, is was looking at ferritin, changes in ferritin as yeah. an early marker of uh, fatty liver disease. But we'll, we'll, we'll get there. First of all, since we're focused on diabetes, um, just talk to me about the types of diabetes uh, that we're seeing clinically and, you know, and give me a little bit of the epidemiology behind uh, sure. There's, you know, there's, there's three kind of more main types and one off main type. The main type of diabetes, of course, is type 2 diabetes, which is associated. The disease is insulin resistance, where a body's cells stop uh, listening to insulin and the signals it produces and doesn't take blood out of the, uh, or doesn't take glucose out of the bloodstream. And so um, people develop diabetes. This is associated with people who are, in general, overweight or obese. Uh, the, another type is type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease where a person's immune system attacks their own pancreatic beta cells, which are the cells that produce and secrete insulin so that these cells are no longer able to do it to the physiological need of the body. And you, you, these people will need, uh, at some point, to be injecting insulin uh, as a result. Uh, and there is another, so type one we usually see in our pediatric population, which goes from about one and a half to 25, although in medicine, pediatrics ends at 18. Type one can get into the mid 20s. Um, and then later from the mid 30s and above, we can get another kind of type one called latent autoimmune diabetes of the adult, which comes on generally, not all the time, but slower, a slower autoimmune disease uh, of diabetes, uh, but still can wind up patients requiring insulin uh, at the um, older age. And the last one is one called mature onset diabetes of youth. This is just a genetic disease where people, for example, might make insulin, but there's a kink in their pancreas in secreting it, or there's a kink in their receptors in receiving the insulin. And uh, these people have a very mild, mild form of diabetes uh, that usually can be pretty easily treated. Oh, okay, that's good. And, and epidemiology? Uh, the so diabetes is a worldwide epidemic in the United States. We have about 30 million people with diabetes, and we have about 90 million people with prediabetes. And if you add that up, it's 120 million people. And if we have 360 million people in the country, pretty much one out of every three people in America right now are either prediabetic or diabetic, which you know goes along with the fact that around 70% of people in America are either overweight or obese. And type 2 diabetes is around 90 to 95% of people with diabetes type 1, the autoimmune disease is around 5 to 10%. Uh, so you know this and worldwide there's you know 300 million people with diabetes and uh, you know, a huge overweight obesity crisis going on worldwide as well. So this is, um, you know, the CDC, uh, Centers for Disease Control, say if everything continues as it's going now, you know, by 20, you know, 2040 or so, like one out of every two people will have diabetes. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's definitely a, a huge crisis all around the world.
Yeah, you know, arguably, I just, I wrote an editorial for alternative therapies some years back where, you know, if you look at some of the tighter reference ranges, like the San Antonio Heart Study um, uh, looked at glucose and insulin and uh, home IR in quintile division and found, you know, a blood, a, a very normal blood sugar uh, greater than 87, you know, that we would, we wouldn't even bat an eye, eye at uh, was associated with increased heart disease and an insulin above five was trending. So if you, if you, you'll, you'll see that and we see it in our normal population all the time. So these trends like starting to march on the metabolic continuum, you know, even before frank prediabetes or true diabetes, you know, it's, it seems like unless we're actively sort of swimming against the current, um, we're going to fall on that path. Yeah, I mean, I think people can sometimes make extremist, you know, <laughs> statements of, you know, where our blood sugar should be all the time. But yes, there is a huge problem from a multifactorial uh, you know, reasons why uh, being overweight and being obese is happening and how that's, you know, and, and, and insulin resistance, all the factors involved in causing that. I mean, it's not just one thing. I mean, there are people, you know, if I may be so blunt, that weigh 300 pounds and are not insulin resistant. And, you know, and then we look at Asians, if they gain 10 pounds, they yes. become insulin resistant. So yes. we, have, we have different effects culturally. Uh, we have different effects genetically. We have different effects with capacity to detox environmental chemicals. I mean, it's a, it's a quirky thing. But as a general rule, yeah, it's a big, 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 big problem for a growing number of Americans. Talk about risk factors. Now, the bulk of our podcast, I think most usefully, will be focused on type 2 diabetes. And, you know, we'll get into labs and we'll get into your PE and your interventions and causes. But, you know, just flipping through your book and reading about um, the Teddy study, for instance, uh, and type 1 diabetes, um, talk to me about risk factors. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. You look at, they, they're looking at diet, they're looking at immunization, they're looking at toxin yeah. exposures. So, like, tell me what they found with regard to type 1. Well, you know what, this, the study is not yet out. So they are, they're still in the accumulating and analyzing data. But the Teddy study was a very, is, is an ongoing, uh, very um, uh, innovative study. And this is for type 1. They're trying to figure out what are really the main factors for why a person comes down, so to say, with type 1 diabetes. Now, of course, with type 1, like in any, you do need a gene. So if you don't have a g the gene for type 1. Which are, which are, go ahead. The, uh, the uh, HLA-DQ uh, 2s and 8s. Okay. Uh, so, you know, if you don't have these genes, it's not going to happen. But, uh, you know, many people have these genes. The idea is what turns them on. Mm -hmm. And so... The, uh, so, yes, yeah, so the Teddy, so we're looking at things, and we know Finland has historically had the number, the, the highest per capita type 1 um, patients in the world. And the Finns have done studies that if they give infants vitamin D3, if they give infants omega-3 fish oils, there's a significant decrease in those infants developing type A versus in control groups that didn't receive either of those nutrients. And so Teddy is looking at, you know, what about nutrient deficiencies? But they're also looking at what about the, the mother's health 
during her pregnancy? What about, you know, the vaccinations? What about environmental exposures? What about getting sick, the child getting sick? What about the ingestion of food foods that have some association with type one development. Well, there, what have they found? Can you give me some meat? I mean, no, have, I can't. Like, can't. I mean, the, the study is not yet reported. Okay. Now, the problem is, is here, you know, I see a lot of type one kids. And, you know, in reality, these, there's so many of these, you cannot pinpoint it. Many of these kids, they, they, you know, they were raised, the parents fed them organic food and didn't vaccinate them. And it's a healthy, functional family. And they didn't put new carpeting down or, you know, with all these toxins and, you know, and the kid was healthy and bam, gets type one, you know, in reality, that's the number, that's the main presentation. There are some kids who got sick beforehand and there's an idea that um, there's an idea with type one that you know one interesting thing with type one I think is that there are kids who develop the antibodies but haven't yet developed the disease. And when they analyze these kids that already had positive antibodies, showing the disease is kind of in process, but it hasn't clinically manifested. They what, saw- what antibodies? So these there so with an autoimmune disease, right? We have. Um, the, 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 the white blood cells are, say, attacking these pancreatic beta cells, and, and, and they're producing antibodies uh, against these cells, right? So these kids had insulin antibodies. They had islet cell antibodies. Okay. They had, you know, antibody GAD65, but okay. they didn't have diabetes. Okay. So we see that the immune system is already attacking their pancreas, but it's holding its own yet. Okay. And, uh, and we can see this some other times in patients who have, for example, Hashimoto's, we see elevated, yep. you know, antibodies, but they don't need the hormone yet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they found that these kids almost invariably had leaky gut, intestinal permeability. And there's an idea that viruses from the gut, like Coxsackie B, B virus, through the leaky gut gets through and then it goes to the pancreas and initiates an autoimmune response. Uh, And so, you know, naturopathically, you'd think, well, if we could get hold of these kids and right when the antibodies are elevated and and maybe heal the leaky gut and and support their immune system with nutrients, uh, ashwagandha, with, with D, with, you know, fish oils, maybe we could prevent the onset of them. It's just that obviously we're not as a rule just randomly testing, you know, uh, diabetes antibodies in all pediatric patients walking in our door. Yeah, that's right. Um, so that, you know, so we know the gut, you know, s- seems to be I- involved and we, it would, it'll be great when we get the studies to really find out. But my experience, you know, 25 years, I cannot say with any, any, you know, assertion that any of the factors that they're looking at have played out with any regularity in my type one patients. So clearly it's going to be multifactorial. And yeah, like or you know, it may just be karma. <laughs> it may just be that's what God said you're going to deal with this life. That's so, pretty interesting. Uh, well, what about what about some of the early studies looking at different caseins? triggering. Yeah, well, that's what I said, the food sensitivity. So obviously, uh, you know, gluten, 
you know, there is a triad of, of celiac disease, type 1, and Hashimoto's, right? So that's a very well-known triad of autoimmunity. And so gluten uh, is uh, associated, if, if someone has celiac disease and they are not aware of it, now, um, and I have had some type ones when they were diagnosed in the hospital were tested for celiac and it was positive. And so we do know uh, my idea with celiac, and I mentioned it in the book, is that, I mean, this is a test. We should be testing all kids as soon as they start eating, uh, you know, grains, as soon as they start eating wheat, just to try to catch any celiac right from the get-go, any celiac patient so that we can help prevent, I believe, other autoimmune conditions like type 1 developing. Yeah. So gluten, for sure, dairy has been associated. But if we look at dairy, I mean, for all the people in the world who eat dairy, there's a lot more than those than there are type 1 diabetic patients. So, you know, we can't say that everybody who eats, you know, cow's milk or sheep or goat or whatever winds up getting diabetes because there's casein. So there has to be some individual you know, response uh, to it that we can't make a general uh, population, uh, uh, you know, observation. Well, let me just ask you, and then we'll move over to type two, because we're going to talk about that a lot. But I mean, you're going to clearly be flagged in your practice if mom presents with Hashimoto or dad has some sort of an autoimmune thyroid disease going on, or they already have been diagnosed with celiac. I mean, and, 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 you know, and they've got young kids. I mean, you might be, you're going to be flagged to consider that, I'm sure. Do you ever test for the HLA genotypes? Uh, you know, I, I have not, no. I, I haven't. Um, I think, um, um, it, it, you know, it, 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 I have um, every now and then if a parent has type 1, you know, uh, I've tested kids for just the, you know, the, the antibodies, yeah, the antibodies, right? Because I, I guess I'm more, you know, interested in that than if they just have the risk for it, right? Sure. Um, but um, that I'm more interested in doing that with kids. And what's uh, your, and what, and the key antibodies you're going to look at are the anti-insulin antibodies and the Yeah, there's, GAD. Um, yeah, GAD65 is an enzyme uh, mm -hmm. in the beta cell and the islet cell antibodies. I mean, those are, there's a few others, but those are the main ones, uh, you know, to, um, uh, there's a zinc-8 one, uh, but, you know, th there's a, a little panel of diabetes antibodies. Uh, in a lot of patients, the adult patients with type 1, the signifying antibody is the GAD65. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the one. If you have a, a skinny type 2 diabetic and, they're, and they never weighed, you know, they were never overweight and they were eating right and, and exercising and they quote unquote came down with type 2, you should have a high suspicion that they actually have type 1. And, and testing for GAD65 will, uh, will give you the, uh, a potentially a, a new diagnosis. And I've had to re-diagnose dozens and dozens of misdiagnosed type 2 diabetic patients who really had LADA. Okay. All right. Good. That's, a, that's really useful for us. Um, so let's move on to, give me the, give me the risk factors to, to type 2 diabetes. I know yeah. this is we're primarily talking to a clinical audience, so they're going to have the, you know, the general idea, but let's do, let's run through them. And then we're going to talk about your workup and your treatment and all of that. 
Well, type two is more, we've got those kind of figured out. Obviously, having abdominal adiposity, right? The insulin resistance certainly comes from, uh, you know, that beer belly, the abdominal fat produces uh, inflammatory cytokines that cause cellular insulin resistance. Um, but what, you know, so obviously we would associate people maybe overeating, but not only overeating, but overeating foods that produce, say, nutritional deficiencies, that they're not getting in D or omega-3s, they're not getting in zinc and magnesium and fiber and things that uh, can help the cells you know, not become insulin resistant. Also not getting fiber can injure the microbiome. And we do know that if the microbiome is producing inflammatory cytokines, those can transverse through into the body, like tumor necrosis factor alpha, and cause cellular insulin resistance. So for eating a bad diet, it may also not be giving us nutrients, but it could be harming our gut microbiome, which then systemically can initiate insulin resistance. We certainly have, for example, environmental toxicity, right? So environmental toxicity is totally associated. The, the persistent organic pollutants yes. can also be called obesogens, yes. can certainly be called diabetogens. And we have very good studies that in people that have more chemicals in their fat cells, they have more insulin resistance and more risk of diabetes. Um, so we can also, you can also say, uh, gosh, sleep apnea is super associated with developing a poor appetite control, craving for carbohydrates and gaining weight. In fact, the, and, um, the NAHANES, our national um, health and uh, nutrition uh, group, found that if a person gets less than five hours of sleep a night, their risk of the becoming obese increases 235%. Wow. Wow. 10%. You know, so we've got to look at the, and of course, lack of exercise. Uh, Obviously, since that is one way to develop muscles, which burn most glucose and, and of course, burn calories. And, you know, so we've got a a, a lot of, you could also say hormonal, Mm -hmm. if they're producing too much cortisol, uh, if they're uh, not working with good stress management, and not only producing more cortisol, but of course, many people handle stress by overeating. So there's a lot of interrelated aspects of etiological factors uh, with our type 2 diabetic patients. Talk to me about, um, you know, in addition to the abdominal adiposity, some of the obvious presenting signs of someone on the, on the diabetic continuum. What are, what are the other physical exam findings you're looking at? You know, well, they may have, uh, you know, they may have wounds that don't heal well. They may also be getting a little fungal, athlete's foot, or even um, I just had a diabetic patient develop ringworm. Uh, um, So, you know, there's a little more fungal growth since fungus loves, you know, sugars, right? But in general, you know, these people can walk around kind of like hypertension, you know, maybe they feel tired, maybe they feel, you know, fatigued or they're moody, but you can't really, oh, they may, you know, if it's very bad, they may be urinating a little more. Uh, but, they, you know, the problem is it can be a little bit silent 
uh -huh. uh, for people. I have had so many type 2 patients. I'm asked, well, how are you diagnosed? Oh, you know, I hadn't had a yearly for six years. So I went to the doc and just thought I would get that. And bam, you're a diabetic, you know, so you're, you know, you're a diabetic patient. So uh, there aren't a lot of overt signs unless it is really spinning very badly, you know, out of control. What's the, what's the base, the standard lab panel you're looking at with your type 2s? And then I want to talk about some of the specialty tests that you use and some of the nutrient markers you're looking at. I think with type 2, obviously, your basic yearly panel, right? We do want to check, obviously, lipids, the kidneys, the livers, your basic CMP, CBC. I always include a ferritin uh, because ferritin is by far the number one marker, if it's elevated, that indicates fatty liver. And uh, before um, GGT and before liver enzymes are elevated, in general, uh, by far the most reliable one is an elevated ferritin. Now, you can rule out hemochromatosis, but uh, only 2% of the population has hemochromatosis. And those numbers, you know, for ferritin are 700, 1,000. Uh, right. Ferritin can be elevated, but less so. And, it, you know, fatty liver is now the number one chronic liver disease in the country. So it's a lot more popular or common, I should say, than uh, hemochromatosis. Um, so um, that's, you know, I mean, I always, I would like to do vitamin D. Of course, we're always doing glucose. We're doing a hemoglobin A1C. It's good for the type 2s to get a C peptide. Mm -hmm. uh, so we just know where is their pancreas production of insulin. Um, if a person injects insulin or has an insulin antibody, insulin is no longer really a good marker. And the other thing with insulin is that it doesn't really have a range. You know, it's got that, you know, it just says it's six or eight, but, you know, the, we have a range with C-peptide generally from 1.1 to 4.4, and there's a lot of, you know, type twos that will show up at five or six, showing pretty clear insulin resistance, but we're also looking to see if it's getting low, if they've been type two and uncontrolled for a long time, and it may indicate that they actually do need to start on insulin. So C-peptide um, is a good test. I think it's also good to get an, uh, an HSCRP. Obviously, we know the number one reason uncontrolled people with diabetes die is cardiovascular disease. So checking inflammation, checking fibrinogen. We may want to do one of those specialty, um, you know, instead of just cholesterol and triglycerides, you know, do the specialty panels with lipoprotein A and apolipoprotein B and uh, just get a little more risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Uh, we may want to uh, check homocysteine as well for another cardiac risk uh, did I say, I probably said vitamin D. Mm -hmm. We could check the thyroid insulin resistance does decrease thyroid in men. Uh, testosterone, free and total testosterone uh, can be decreased from their insulin resistance and even worse if they were put on a statin drug. Mm -hmm. uh, a very bad combination to maintain good testosterone levels in men. Uh, you know, so we're... Um, um, you know, the glycomark is a specialty test that helps us interpret. You get a blood sugar, you know, you get an A1C and it's six. 
And the problem with an A1C of six, which on average means your blood sugar has been around 126, say, that could mean that's because you wake up at 80 or, you know, and it, but it goes to, or you make it up at 100 and it goes to 140 during the day. So you have a pretty narrow range of blood sugars that have an average of 126. Or it could be you go down to 50 and up to 240, you know, 40, and it still gets an average of 126. So the A1C isn't necessarily accurate for control. It just gives you an average three-month number. But the glycomark is an, kind of an interesting test that really helps understand if the blood sugars are elevated, particularly after meals. How, you know, are you having acute excursions uh, after meals? And that can be a good help in understanding the A1C and as well as a diet, diary, and a glucose graph, but also giving patients motivation to, you know, maybe kind of tighten up the diet just a little bit to get that glycomark number in range. And I guess off the top of my head, those are a few things that we'll be drawing. Well, tell me, you know what? I haven't gotten the glycomark. I mean, is this something yeah. I can get through a standard lab? Oh, absolutely. You betcha. And yeah. when do you, I mean, is it a first morning fasting? I mean, when do you no, go? No, it's just, uh, oh, well, I mean, it doesn't need to be fasting, but it, you're going to usually do it with your with the others. labs, you know, that need to be fasting. And what is it exactly looking at? So there's this chemical called 1,5-AG, which is in our body at a certain level all the time. And the kidney resorbs it so that it has this range of, you know, say it's like 9 or 10 to 26 or so. When your blood sugar goes high, the kidneys open up to release the glucose generally if it gets over 200. And unfortunately, the 1,5-AG is sucked out with the glucose. So when we measure it in the serum, you have, a very, you have a low level. And so the lower the level of the glycomark, the higher the excursion of the glucose was, right? Okay. So, um, this is, so it's a little opposite of what we're thinking, but we actually yeah. want higher levels of glycomark showing that we never really had any acute elevations of the uh, A1C. So you're still using the A1C, but with the caveats you just talked about, and then you're kind of yeah, tightening I mean, it up especially with the Yes, and yes, pardon me for interrupting, but you know, if the A1C comes back at 10, I mean, it's your, your glucose is always high. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it's always good. You're going to have a low glycomark in that regard, but more if it's like, where is it if it's at 6.5? You know, is it the nighttime or is it after meals? And, uh, you know, so it helps us kind of pinpoint a little more acute elevations when the number isn't that bad. It's mm -hmm. not ideal. But, you know, we're trying to figure out where are those rises coming. Are you doing um, glucose insulin tolerance tests? I do those. Only, so I'm going to do those in pre-diabetic patients. I think it's a really bad thing to do in people who have diabetes. Yeah. Because uh, if you do a test like that, I mean, obviously their blood sugars are just going to shoot up. And we already know they have diabetes. But in pre-diabetic patients, it, you know, I do uh, – I, I, I may, I may – do a fasting glucose and insulin. I actually have them eat a meal from a fast food place because I'm always interested in seeing what does food have to do with this instead of just a glucose drink because uh, we don't eat glucose 
right. eat food. So I, I make them eat a certain meal at a fast food place and then retest their glucose and insulin about an hour and a half later. And that can give us a very good idea of just how insulin resistant, mild, moderate, severe uh, that person is. Yeah. Okay, good. So you're giving them two lab slips, fasting blood sugar, fasting, fasting insulin, and then you say go to McDonald's and have a Big Mac and some fries and no, then go back. I, no, no, I, what I, I do send them to McDonald's, but they, <laughs> they get a pancake order, but only eat one pancake. They have one syrup and they have one hash brown and, that, and water. And that's 100 grams of, of refined carbohydrates with a crap load of saturated fat. And, uh, and uh, if that doesn't cause them to be insulin resistant, then they will not become insulin resistant. <laughs> um, but I, I put it, so I figured that out with the nutrition online of McDonald's. So it is, you know, it's in, in that 75 to 100 gram carbs. Wow. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah that's useful. Okay, good. Um, Specialty testing. I mean, you mentioned stool testing in the book. Like, yeah, what do you, yeah. what do you, yeah, and just talk about that. And are you looking for intestinal permeability, like with a zonulin or lactulose mannitol? Like, what are some of the specialty yeah. tests you're thinking about in this population? So, in the type two populations, um, now, you know, first, I, you know, food sensitivity, I do yeah. if there's another condition associated, say if they have diabetes and psoriasis or asthma, although obesity can just cause the asthma uh, uh, since it's so pro-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we realize that a diabetic diet is pretty restricted. And, you know, so, uh, you know, to just do a food sensitivity test and take out even more foods, uh, you know, we have to be careful. People have to eat. And uh, so if, if there's a reason specifically, they get migraines, they have, they have, you know, they have asthma, they have psoriasis, they have uh, GERD, you know, they have some other condition that I so associate with food sensitivities, that's when I do it. Um, I, you know, the gut, the stool analysis, if they, you know, again, are, what is their gut like? Is it healthy? Um, have they had a lot of antibiotics? How obese are they? What have their diet done? But, you know, with the gut, we're looking uh, for uh, beneficial bacteria, dysbiosis, yeast overgrowth. I am not a fan right now of that zonulin test done through a certain lab. I have been disenfranchised. I have not been happy with it. At this point, if I want to do leaky gut, I do, I do like the lactulose mannitol test. I think that is clearly functionally telling me what is getting through the gut. Um, but the antibodies, uh, you know, again, like, for example, you can have, you can have antibodies to diabetes, but not have diabetes, you know, not let have it. You right, can have, right, right. you know, same with Hashimoto. So I don't like that antibody test from that one lab. I'm much more into functionally, is someone showing leaky gut? Mm -hmm. Are they sucking in that lactulose? That is not okay. And then I know, right? And so that's my, that's the test I, I prefer. Um, <laughs> Let me Go just ahead. ask you before we move on this, the food sensitivities, I'm assuming you're looking at IgG. Yeah, I'm a, uh, you know, I, I have used Alatess mm -hmm. forever. 
Uh, mm -hmm. for well over a decade. I think it's an amazingly accurate test. So it's IgG, but you want one that does subsets one through four. Yeah. That You know, so it does all of those. Now, you have some docs that say, oh, you also have to do tight, you know, IgA or this. You know what? If you've got a good lab that does IgG, you're going to get your results. And again, if you keep pulling foods out and out and out, what do people eat? And the other thing is that, let's face it, we have the top 10 food sensitivities, right? Gluten, dairy, eggs, corn, soy, almonds, coconut, tomatoes, you know, everything else really is a leaky gut. And you pull yep. those out for a month, heal their gut, and you can add them back in right away, right? Mm -hmm. So people don't, I don't, it concerns me that a lot of people don't know how to interpret food sensitivities and you know, people have to avoid 40 foods for three years. I mean, it's ridiculous. So, you know, uh, I, for me, I'm very content with just IgG with a good lab. I get the foods I need. It's not too many and when I work my protocol, it, it really helps them out. All right. We're going to circle back to your protocol. One more question on labs. Yeah. Nutrients. What do you, so you mentioned oh, well, vitamin D. And I what, do want to else? say one other lab to consider is yes. also uh, environmental testing. Yes. And, oh, and so, we're going to, okay. I want to talk about toxins okay. as, a, as a separate question. So oh, nutrients, okay. are you looking at nutrients? You know, I am not very pleased with, you know, nutrient testing companies either. Okay. You know, I mean, the, you know, I don't really want to spend $700, you know, and another test, you know, do any of us really know what that test measures? Uh, and I've had problems with that cheaper test where like uh, the patient came back B12 deficient, but then I tested serum B12 and methylmalonic acid and it was perfect. And so I'm like, I don't, I'm, I'm not really sure. And for me, I do diet diaries. First visit, they, you know, they're doing, I mean, they'll, I'll give them a seven day diet diary and I will see everything they eat and drink for seven days. And I feel, I mean, yes, I, I mean, I have a nutrition degree. I was chair of nutrition. I feel very confident that any naturopathic or integrative physician should be able looking at diets and knowing foods and nutrients to really pull out what they have in their diet and what they do not without having to spend a lot of extra money on it. Now I do measure, of course, the vitamin D. I do think if they have neuropathy, but you know, we can do serum B12, methylmalonic acid, folic acid, homocysteine. We can do D, iron. We can do red blood cell zinc. Mm -hmm. I mean, these key nutrients can, red blood cell magnesium, yep. that can be done through their labs where their insurance pays for it. Yes. And these are some of the key nutrients that we really care about, right? right. Absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm with you. I know. I, yeah. think we, I think we can get a pretty, we can get a good right. insurance covered workup from a standard lab. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned toxins in the beginning as, you know, a major player. And I think you were citing that Lee, that 2006 Lee et al. study about the, you know, the Association of Persistent Organic Pollutants and Diabetes in your book. Yeah, um, that was a great, great yeah. seminal paper. And folks, I will um, link to it. It's just really one of my, it's just one of the strongest papers. It's interesting how it didn't generate the buzz you would have you would have expected. Well, um, you know, talk, I mean, so just talk about that again. You touched on it earlier. Per, the well, 
and how you do well let me just ask you this so touch right. talk about it um you know what are you thinking about clinically with your patients and how you're dealing with the presence of the likelihood that pops are playing a role and how do you work it up um so uh I think we can assume everybody has environmental chemicals in their fat cells, uh, you know, lead in their bones. Just today, just because we know from cord blood in infants, mm -hmm. in newborns, they right. have over 200 chemicals in their cord blood, right? So the idea is, you know... Um, what was the exposure? Of, now, we all just get exposed, but did they work in any industry or job that even gave them more? Did they, do they, I mean, you have to ask every patient, do you have exterminators? Do they spray outside? You know, do they spray inside the home? Do you have a lawn guy that's, you know, or are you spraying Roundup? around your home what's your you know what is their personal exposure what's their do they have sensitivity can they not walk down the detergent aisle does perfume give them headaches i mean how just really overtly toxic are they that they're showing symptoms or not um i do do um heavy metal urine uh testing um uh for a, a main environmental but there's now newer labs um, that um, um, uh, uh, Great Plains right. is coming out with a now a, ur a good urine test, right? So I'm starting to play with that. But we have to deal with this in a number of different ways because, you know, people have to get these chemicals out to be able to really help reduce their insulin resistance. So the idea is I have uh, handouts on just, you know, I give them, we go over the environment and how their home has to be very green and very clean. And I refer them to the really organic exterminators, uh, you know, in town that are green and not just doing, you know, uh, the chrysanthemum pyrethrons, you know, made from a flower, you know, just the, you know, the fake green. People. Right. You know, so, um, so, um, and then I, you know, I try to get them into saunas. Uh, we sometimes have to do an actual detox, uh, protocol with them. Um, but you know, we have to also, but at least they have to start, um, cleaning their home, getting supplements to help detox. We have to make sure their livers and kidneys are working well. We have to get them sweating, you know, we have to just start opening their amunctories, make sure they're pooping daily, and uh, just start working on, on these levels uh, to ensure that not just to begin with, but also we know scientifically as people lose weight, they're, they yes. release these chemicals. And right. that can be, I feel, that could be one of the problems where people, you know, lose weight, lose weight, lose weight, and then reach a plateau and they can't lose weight more. And I have concerns that it's because of these chemicals now being so, you know, in their system. And if they can't, if they're not peeing and pooping, and if their liver isn't supported, if they're not sweating, then these chemicals may be then just reinitiating the insulin resistance. So it's um so it's a whole process with patients working with these chemicals. So you assume, let me just kind of summarize this. You're assuming everybody's got a toxic burden, which yep. is logical, and then you're doing some kind of an intake to find out how severe it might be in an individual just given their presentation and and where in their own homes yep. and workplaces. What's going on. 
Yeah, I mean, if you've got a, I have a guy who's a type two diabetic, his office is right next to like the machinery shop, you know, like, you know, that's, you know, then you might need a HEPA filter, you might need things just even in your own office, let alone in your, or just some, you've just got to take some extra liver support, you've got to really be protecting yourself if you're just every day you go to work. And, you know, you work in a, an, a building or a factory where you're getting an exposure, right? Are you recommending everybody go to organic, use glass, oh, yes. and those basic kind of... Yeah, those are also my handouts that I have. No plastics is, you know, the number one bolded, uh, you know, thing to, to do, right? Not to use... Uh, not to use, not to cook in, not to carry, not to store, you know, plastics. And um, especially here in Montana where, you know, you leave it in your car and you're thirsty and you get back in. Oh, it's a little warm. I'll drink it. And like, no. (laughs) So, yeah, plastics and then definitely organic. You know, I mean, certainly um, as much I say organic, to be honest, uh, as uh, it's available and affordable. I have um, cards of, you know, the... Uh, the clean 15 dirty dozen. So, Mm -hmm. you know, of any food that is a, that is okay on a low carb diabetic diet, you know, like leafy greens, all leafy greens must be, you know, organic, right? They are at the bottom of the most toxic, uh, you know, vegetables. And so there are just some things everybody has to get in organic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, any, if you want, you know, if you're open to sharing some of your, yeah. some of your guidelines with us, we'll just, we'll post them. It would okay. be, oh, and incidentally, folks, we'll also post um, Dr. Morstein's website and uh, some of the other links, a link to the, a link to her book and, you know, just any of the papers we mentioned on here, we'll circle back and try to corral that, that material together. Um, all right. So let's talk about diet. I mean, right. because you are one of the, the founder of the Low Carb Diabetes <laughs> Association, we can, um, I got a hint at where we're going to go, but what's, give me the, give me the um, high level view of what you're doing with the diet. Well, you know, it was interesting that, um, I don't know if you just saw, but this week, yes. a very, you know, the article that came out, type, yeah, the you, know, Carb diet. Yep. you know, what I think is interesting about that is that, we well, give me, give break. a snapshot, give a snapshot okay. of the so study this, first. Yeah. This study was using low carb Uh, diets in type 1 pediatric patients and showing how it so helped control their glucose without the highs and lows of a standard diet, you know, causing brittle, quote unquote, diabetes. And um, what's fascinating to me and frustrating is that if this had been a drug trial, if this drug had controlled their diabetes as well, they would have said, we got to start using this right now. But since it was a diet, they're like, well, this was a great study and the diet was magnificent, but you know, we just need more studies. We can't, you, we can't recommend this for people, you know, all people with type one diabetes. And that's where we hit our heads against the wall uh, in this regard. But you know, there's also, there's a, for type two diabetes, um, Dr. Um, uh, Feynman and Bernstein, there's a, a, a very key study uh, that came out with 26 medical doctors and researchers on uh, that uh, a low-carb diet needs to be uh, the initial treatment diet uh, for diabetes. 
And um, this was in a peer-reviewed journal, uh, you know, uh, diet, dietary carbohydrate restriction as the first approach in uh, diabetes, um, uh, in diabetes management. So, you know, it's not, you know, the low-carb diet is very validated by, you know, many, many studies. Um, and, and being able to control diabetes, diabetes as a one-sentence definition, right, is the you've lost the metabolic capacity to process carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this is the key diet. There is, I, people say, you know, there is the, on the other opposite extreme, there were a couple of good studies on what's called the MAPI2 diet, which is a actually really a macrobiotic, high-carb almost no fat, no, you know, vegan, very low protein diet that also showed immense, immense improvement in all lab and, and, and body uh, indices of, of diabetes. Um, so you do get, uh, you know, some people saying, no, it's got to be a high carb, you know, fat, you know, low fat plant-based diet. But in reality, for most, you know, I would say the low carb is really the key diet to start and use with patients. So that's, that's assume, my promotion. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would assume um, compliance might be a little bit better with a low yeah, carb. Yeah, I mean, that's true. It's true because even in the macrobiotic study, the men, this was when men, they were fed this diet. They didn't prepare anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in terms of being able to socialize or go out to a restaurant or live with your family, you know, a low-carb diet is so much more usable in that regard than a macrobiotic, you know, type diet. Well, listen, if you can send, give me the citations on those papers so we can throw them in the show notes, that would be great. What, oh, yeah. I mean, why, why do you think that particular diet was successful? Because they seem like they're diametrically opposed. <laughs> it do seem like they're diametrically opposed. I think, I don't know, I've tried to figure this out. I do think, you know, Dr. Joe Prezorno, who's an amazing ND, and of course, is one of the leading NDs on environmental chemicals and even and insulin resistance. But he did this great talk at 2014 AAMP conference on cellular acidity, not serum acidity, but mm. because that doesn't mm. change, but interest, intracellular acidity, and that, the, and that too much intracellular acidity um, which is caused by animal protein, the sulfur amino acid proteins, which are animal proteins and too much salt, um, you can certainly increase insulin resistance. So you just wonder if there are some people that have that, you know, that I'm this theorizing, but when I'm trying to connect it, if we're really reducing everything that could produce, say, cellular intracellular acidity and that is a huge aspect of some people's production of insulin resistant tendency maybe that helps them right that's pretty Um, fascinating yeah yeah, i'm that's i'm just pulling those together also we do know now the ketogenic people may not like to hear this but too much saturated fat can produce insulin resistance. Now, so, what, what if you're so? But what if you're like? How does it do that? If you're very low carbohydrate and you don't have a insulin, you know, your insulin levels are extremely well controlled. What? What? I mean, what's the mechanism? I, I well, I mean, I think the you know, if we're just getting too much saturated fat, it's starting to interfere with the cells 
recognition of insulin, even if it's a relatively lower insulin. Certainly, we do know that omega-3s are needed in the cell to produce insulin sensitivity. Uh, And are you talking... Are you, so in the cell wall. Okay, in the yeah. cell membrane. Okay, okay, yeah. yeah so the if the ratio, membrane. if the ratio of saturated fats in the membrane to the polyunsaturated threes in particular is too high, then you're setting yourself up for problems. That's what it seems. Good. Well, that does make sense. You know, that does make sense. I mean, then it becomes a really rigid membrane, and exactly, you know, and not, we see this with depression and with yeah. other cells in the body, right? Yeah, that's it. Okay, that's a really good point. Um. How did, listen, this is kind of off just my own curiosity. I don't know if you're going to remember this from 2014, but how did he say you would assess intracellular acidity? Out of curiosity. Well, I mean, it's a, no, he said, so he did say that like a random urine, okay. a random saliva does not, you know, pick that up. A pH, using pH. No, not a random, he thought that potentially a 24-hour urine pH might, might be. be helpful. Yes. Fascinating. That's great. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, what kind of carb count are you looking at in your, in your low carb in, when you're when you're doing the low carb diet? So generally, I'm you know striving to have people have less than forty five, even ideally maybe less than forty grams a day. Okay. And are you? And I'm assuming most of those carbs are coming from veggies. And are you doing any fruits? Well, you know, fruits are very, uh, fruits are very individual. Obviously, we start off by not having fruits. Now, by fruits, of course, I'm not talking about avocado, cucumbers, olives, or even some tomatoes, which are quote unquote fruits, but none of us consider them quote unquote fruits. <laughs> uh, you know, so, but we're, if we're talking about fruits, if they want to try, if they're pretty well controlled and they're just, they just, you know, I will say, you know, try a quarter cup of berries at lunch, not breakfast, not supper, lunch. Uh, so, um, and then we just need to see where, where, what does their blood sugar do? But we're not, we really can't do a lot. If you're going to do fruit, it, it, it can only be berries a little bit uh, at lunch. But, you know, you have an apple, that's 20 grams of carbs. A banana is 34. Mm-hmm. You know, these are just not going to be fitting in a, in a low-carb diet. What are the, so what, car, what give me, what are the carbs you're going to be telling them to eat? Well, you know, uh, so carbs to telling them to eat would be, um, pretty much, the, like you said, the vegetables, nuts. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I do, uh, you know, nuts will have some carbs yep. uh, in them, right? So um, otherwise, um, that's kind of pretty much it. It's a, yeah, the yeah. carb allowance. <laughs> I know, it goes quick. <laughs> 40 grams yeah, of carbs. But, you know, with the nuts, at least they, you know, I, um, you know, making nut pancakes or nut bread, nut granola, you know, these can add a really pleasant variety to the diet that people enjoy. You know, ketogenic gets all the name out there, but in reality, my patients, most of them don't want to do, a, you know, a really strict ketogenic. They want to be around 30 grams, 35, and get nut breads in and get this, and, and they still do very well. Uh, you know, but that ketogenic, you know, it's just meat and cream and a little veggies that, you know, a lot of my patients are not really interested in taking it that far. 
Right. And the other thing we have to realize is that with any low-carb diet, ketogenic or a more omnivore-type ketogenic, it's going to ruin the microbiome. So we have got to give fiber powder at least 4, 10 grams a day uh, because without, those, without that brand, without that grain fiber, it is going to negatively change the microbiome. Yeah. Okay. So good. I wanted to move on to talking about you know, some of your interventions. What kind of fiber are you recommending? Well, I'm not, you know, I don't really care what fiber powder it is per se, particularly though, I like ones that do have a little bran in them, oat bran, rice bran. Um, but if they're getting in flat ground flax seeds or psyllium, or you want to get some apple pectin or, you know, or, uh, you know, I don't particularly care, except I honestly, I do, yes, I do care because I do, I think bran you know, that's the number one thing that we're pulling out of the diet when we're pulling out the whole grains. Yep. And bran, you know, that is the food of the beneficial bacteria. And they turn it into short-chain fatty acids, which is the food of the colon. And short-chain fatty acids systemically, when they get absorbed, they're anti-inflammatory. Uh, they're, they're very helpful. And so we just have to realize that willy-nilly pulling out the grains or, you know, these have consequences in our yeah. microbiome. Yeah. Okay. Good point. Um, some of the essential nutraceuticals you're prescribing to your type yeah. 2 diabetics. Um, I will always start with a good multiple vitamin. And um, uh, so because, you know, we've just got to make sure that every single day, they get all the vitamins and minerals that a body needs to run well, right? Um, and, and then I will also put every patient on uh, uh, fish oils and at least uh, 1,000 EPA, 750 DHA, at least that a day. Sometimes I will double it uh, mm -hmm. for patients. I also, you know, I have my own, look, I mean, I have a diabetic product that I think is the best. It's called, if I may, it's called yep. Diamond. It's made from Priority One. But, you know, you're talking about you've got to give, you know, Gymnema Sylvester and alpha lipoic acid and benfotiamine and some bilberry. You know, you've got to, you've got to give a little extra zinc and chromium, vanadium. You've got to give a little uh, liver support, right? Uh, you, you, you've got to give a little green tea extra. You've got to a turmeric. And so it's, it's good to find one product that has therapeutic doses of all of these antioxidants. Because look, what are we doing with type 2 diabetes? We're trying to replenish nutrients. We're trying to maximize cellular functioning. We're trying to, we need antioxidants, we need anti-inflammatories, because if their blood sugar is high, it, it's going to cause oxidative damage. That's the pathways that initiate the, you know, the diabetic eye and kidney and nerve and endothelial damage. So we've got to be protecting their body. And so we have to start with these vitamins, minerals, oils, and then diabetic protections. We also, you know, the Gymnema Sylvester can reduce their cravings for sweets. It can also help regenerate pancreatic, you know, beta cells. So um, we're also then probably most patients may be deficient in D. You know, dose D as they need. Everybody needs to be on fiber powder. 
you might want you might want to choose uh, at least temporarily a probiotic uh, if you need. There's um, uh, Claire has one from a metabolic formula um, for people that have a metabolic syndrome a type condition. Um, but I mean, that's a good start, mm-hmm. right? Because if you get one product that has the alpha lipoic acid and the benfotiamine and the gymnema and the turmeric, you know, you're covering many, many bases of what we are needing to achieve in our patients. Yeah. What about some, just out of curiosity, in your opinion and experience, botanicals like that, 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 that have been really pushed as effective, but may not rise up? Um, oh, well, my diabetic product also has berberine in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah so, yes, it's got a thousand milligrams of berberine and gymnema, bilberry, turmeric. I mean, if we're thinking of top botanicals, you know, these are, you know, green tea extract. I mean, these are ones that come up in the study as protective and, uh, you know, and have good clinical effects on people. Yeah, it's a nicely designed product. And we'll, again, we'll link to it in the show notes so people, people can check it out. It really is a nicely designed product. I, and, and I know you've got a, a good background in botanicals, so I appreciate that. Um, medication. Yeah. Talk about that. I mean, people, some people, well, people are going to be coming to you wanting to get off meds. I'm sure people are, you know, wanting to taper and reduce or stop insulin. There's some medications you like, some medications you um, strongly recommend not initiating or stopping. I mean, just talk, give me a kind of the high level view on that. Um, Yeah. So medication, obviously with type two, everybody everywhere starts with metformin. Now, because metformin is, you know, it doesn't cause weight gain, water retention, cardiovascular disease, like other drugs do. It mainly stops the liver or or mainly reduces the liver's production of glucose. There's a little, little bit of maybe insulin resistance help, but mostly it's working in the liver. Its main side effect could be upset stomach, but if that happens, you know, you can switch to metformin ER which for the most patients takes away the stomach upset. So metformin is, you don't worry about metformin. It's a good drug. It's safe. There's nothing to be, and, and it can help patients, you know, innately get their blood sugars at least under better control. Uh, so their insulin resistance goes down and they can start losing weight. I, I like the GLP inhibitors, the glucagon-like peptide 1 inhibitors, that's a generally now it's a once a week injection and uh, that um, that uh, decreases appetite, uh, increases uh, glucagon, uh, it uh, slows down the stomach um, digestion. So we have a slower excursion of glucose into the body, also shown to help lose weight, doesn't gain weight one shot a week. Uh, you know, it got associated with uh, pancreatitis, but I have, I've never seen that. You'll want to, you know, I, I don't think it's a very common thing at all. Uh, it also, if they have a medullary or they had a nodules on their thyroid, probably don't want to give it. Um, so that would be like my second drug um, that I would use. There's ones that we don't, you know, the sulfonylureas cause secretion of insulin from the from the pancreas 
associated with water retention, weight gain, hypoglycemia, mm -hmm. particularly glyburide is the worst uh, in that regard. Um, you know, the um, now the new ones, kind of the um, the um, sodium um, um, glucose light, um, sodium glucose transported two inhibitors. You know, these also cause weight loss. They prevent the kidneys from reabsorbing um, glucose, and the kidney can be responsible for 25% of glucose in the serum. Mm. So it's a pretty big thing. Um, you know, are there concerns that it can cause what we call a euglycemic ketoacidosis, where even in type 2 patients, they can wind up with a ketoacidosis crisis, even if their blood sugars aren't really that high? That's not very good. We're not so sure that it also isn't harming the kidneys long term okay. or causing other problems, but it is a one a day drug and it can, you know, cause, you know, the other, it causes people just to pee out more glucose that can set them up for, um, mm. uh, vaginal and, uh, and genital yeast. Mm -hmm. Although that doesn't tend to be chronic. Although some people get thrush, I'm not sure where that connection is, but, um, so it has some side effects, but it's again, another one where at least we might have some weight loss. You have to watch it with blood pressure. There can be some low blood pressure problems because they're losing a lot of fluid too. Mm. Um, and then, you know, we've got um, the, we've got some, there's the sulfonylureas and then there's um, drugs that, you know, those work all day. You'll need generally to take one a day. Uh, there are some ones that work just at meals that last shorter, but we don't really want to use those because most people would rather take one pill a day. And then there's Avandia and Actos, um, you know, the TZDs, which are essentially off the market since um, the Accord trial, you know, that showed the increased risk of cardiovascular disease with them. You can prescribe them in this country, but nobody really does. And they're still off the market in Europe. Um, so um, the whole problem with drugs with type 2 diabetics is that the disease is insulin resistance. And actually none of the drugs deal with insulin resistance. The only ones that did were the uh, Actos and Avandia, and they were taken off the market. So we actually have no drugs that actually deal with the innate problem of type 2 diabetes. Mostly what we're doing with the drugs is just trying to clear the glucose out of the serum and store it in the fat cells. And, you know, that has consequences that are problematic. Right, right. So ultimately, it goes back to diet and... Oh, yeah, ultimately, yeah. exactly. Um, I know we, we're really at the end of the time. I've got a bunch more questions I want to ask you, but I'm going to refer people to her book. Again, um, it's, it's a great book. It's over 500 pages. You know, she's got a huge bibliography, and it's Master Your Diabetes, a comprehensive, integrative approach to both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. I wanted to spend some time talking to you about diabetic complications, but you cover it in your book nicely oh. with good treatment recommendations. So neuropathy, retinopathy, nephropathy, you know, and other complications, folks. You can actually look at the... Um, 
some of the interventions Dr. Morstein is using. Fine, but you know, just to wrap up because it's essential, talk a little bit about lifestyle. You touched on high cortisol. I mean, we know that's totally diabetogenic when it's un, you know uncontrolled stress, and you, we know exercise is huge. And just you know, some of the things you're thinking of there to um, you know to yeah, take. Yeah, for sure. You know, certainly exercise. And there's different ways to exercise, obviously cardio, resistance, H, you know, high intensity interval training. We, but whatever you're doing, you just got to get a person out and moving their body and starting, you know, starting at a capacity they can do and increasing it. Certainly stress management. What we have to understand is that stress can aggravate diabetes, but diabetes can aggravate stress too, or, or can be a cause of stress. You can't eat this. You can't eat that. You have to check your blood sugars. You're doing it. You're doing a think you're a good job, but your A1C was still a little high. So we have to make sure that people um, feel good about themselves and are dealing with their stress, but that they also have a physician that is a really good non-judgmental support and motivator for their diabetes. Mm. Uh, you know, so that yeah. they're, you know, so um, now also sleep. We didn't get a lot to yes. talk about sleep, but um, yes. if, you know, if they're overweight and, and they say, you got to ask, do you snore? And they're like, yeah, you know, I, have a, I do snore. You should send them for a sleep study. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, we've got to pick up um, sleep apnea as soon as possible to get that under control. And I have a whole another handout on, on just sleep hygiene, you know, what at night, how to ensure you're going to be getting a good night's sleep. There are things you need to do. And um, um, also, uh, you know, so those are lifestyle, you know, key lifestyle aspects. The other things, of course, is living green and, 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 and in that regard. But these have to be big aspects of your discussions with your patients. That's a really lovely ending um, that, you know, we need to meet our patients where we're at, non-judgmentally support them in the journey, not, not have their, their walk towards wellness be fraught with stress and restriction and... Um, you know, frankly, depression and anxiety and so forth. So uh, really, really imp important stuff for us today. And I appreciate it. Um, again, send me whatever you can. We'll pop them into the show notes. So Dr. Morstein, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks Thank for you, Carl. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous, wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making new frontiers in functional medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, these kind of comments will promote new frontiers in functional medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.